The study of words is a fascinating area of study. This is true in every language, but most of us here can relate to it best in our own mother tongue, which is English. Consider the following interesting idiosyncrasies of the English language. There is no egg in eggplant, nor ham in hamburger, neither apple nor pine in pineapple. Grape nuts are neither grapes nor nuts. English muffins weren't invented in England or French fries in France. Sweet meats are candies, while sweetbreads, which aren't sweet, are meat. There are even more paradoxes in our language. Quicksand can work slowly, boxing rings are square, and a guinea pig is neither from Guinea nor is it a pig. And why is it that writers write, but fingers don't fing, and grocers don't gross, and hammers don't ham? If the plural of tooth is teeth, why isn't the plural of booth beef? One goose, two geese. So one moose, two meese? No. Why do we say one index but two indices? Doesn't it seem crazy that you can make amends but not one amend? Doesn't it seem crazy that you comb through the annals of history but not a single annal? If you have a bunch of odds and ends and get rid of all but one of them, what do you call it, an odd or an end? If teachers taught, why didn't preachers prot? If a vegetarian eats vegetables, what does a humanitarian eat? <laughs> Writing and biting are both actions in the present tense. So if you put them in the past tense, then you wrote a letter and you boat your tongue. Sometimes I think all the English speakers should be committed to an asylum for the verbally insane. For example, in what language do people recite at a play and play at a recital? In what language do people ship by truck and send cargo by ship? In what language do people have noses that run and feet that smell? In what language do people park on driveways and drive on parkways? How can a slim chance and a fat chance be the same while a wise man and a wise guy are opposites? How can overlook and oversee be opposites while quite a lot and quite a few are alike? Our English language has an unusual way of talking about certain things only when they are absent. For instance, have you ever seen a horseful carriage or a strapful gown? Have you ever? You'll have to think about that one for a little while, okay? <laughs> have you ever met a sung hero or experienced requited love? And where are all those people who are spring chickens and who would actually hurt a fly? You have to marvel at the lunacy of our English language when it says that your house can burn up as it burns down, when it says you fill in a form by filling it out, and where an alarm goes off by going on. In conclusion, it's strange indeed that when the stars are out, they are visible, but when the lights are out, they are invisible. Such is the study of words. Now, why am I taking all this time to illustrate the nuances of word meanings? Here is the answer. Because the Bible has been given to us in words, and we need to make sure that we understand those words to understand what God has said in His Word. One of the most important words in the Bible is the word 
believe. All the way back in Genesis 15, 6, it says this. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Both of those passages... Back in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament and the New Testament, Genesis 15, 6, John 3, 16, both of those passages tell us that a person's eternal destiny is determined by believing in the Lord. However, you and I both know that the word believe may be used in a variety of different ways. This is true in the English language, this is true in the Hebrew language, this is true in the Greek language. The word believe may be used in a variety of different ways. For example, I believe that it's possible that a high-wire specialist could walk across the Grand Canyon with me on his shoulders. But you would never get me on his shoulders. I believe it, but I would never get up there. My belief is merely intellectual assent. Intellectual acknowledgement. The Bible recognizes that there is that kind of belief. James 2.19 says the demons believe and tremble. The demons believe in God. The demons believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But no one in his right mind would suggest that the demons are saved and that they have their sins forgiven. Their belief is is mere intellectual assent without any submission to God as king or without any submission to Jesus as Lord. So when the Bible talks about believing unto salvation, it is obviously talking about a belief that is more than intellectual assent. It is talking about a belief that is different than the kind of belief the demons have. The kind of belief that prompted them to, whenever they inhabited a person uh, whom Jesus encountered, that person would fall before the feet of Jesus and the demons would cry out, What have you to do with us or what have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demons have a belief. The demons have an intellectual assent. So when the Bible talks about believing unto salvation, it is obviously talking about a belief that is more than intellectual assent. It is talking about a belief that involves the whole person. Saving faith is when a person believes the facts of the gospel, desires to turn from his sin, and surrenders his or her will to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible means when it talks about saving faith, or believing in Jesus, or believing that Jesus is the Christ, or believing that Jesus is the Son of God. It is clearly not talking about a mere intellectual assent like the demons have. So with all this as background, let's turn together to the little letter near the end of the New Testament titled 1 John as we move this morning into the fifth chapter. 1 John chapter 5. <clears throat> Please follow along as I read the first five verses. 1 John Chapter 5. We read, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 
And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In the verses just prior to this, John has been talking about the importance of love for one another in the family of God. If you were here last Lord's Day or even the last two Lord's Day, then you know that has been the topic, the theme of the closing verses of chapter 4. He has also been talking about the fact that love for one another is one of the markers or indicators of a person who has truly been born of God. Since that has been his topic of discussion, it is an easy transition to what he has to say in these verses that we just read. Here, in verses 1 through 5, John talks about being born of God, about loving the children of God, about keeping the Lord's commandments, and about overcoming the world. These are, without a doubt, some of John's favorite topics, and that is why he returns to them time and time again. John repeats himself throughout this letter, but he often says things a different way to make sure we get it and to make sure it is sinking in. These concepts were so important to John that he wanted to make sure that his readers really had a handle on them, and that is why he stated them so often. Of course, we also know that the Holy Spirit of God guided John in what was written here, which means that these concepts were not only important to John, they are also extremely important to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, beloved, that ought to get our attention. We better not miss the message of these verses. Notice how John begins in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Two things are stated in this verse, and these two things are separate but very closely related. The first thing John says is that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. When we read that statement, it is important to remember what we talked about earlier in the message. When the Bible talks about believing in Jesus or believing that Jesus is the Christ, it is not talking about a mere mental assent to facts. If you were to take a poll in our society and ask 100 people if they believe that Jesus is the Christ, my guess is that you would get a lot of affirmative answers. I wouldn't be surprised if 50% or over 50% of the people polled would answer yes to that poll question. Assuming that is the case, are we to conclude that 50% of the people in our society are born-again Christians who know and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ? You know that is not the case. That is clearly not the case in our society. That is a reminder to us that to believe in Jesus 
or to believe that Jesus is the Christ in the biblical sense of those terms is more than just assenting to certain facts or acknowledging certain facts. The word Christ here in this verse is the word Messiah, and it's a reference to the one who is promised throughout Hebrew Scripture as the coming King, the coming Savior, and the coming Redeemer. All the way back in the book of Genesis, God began to state that someday He would send His Savior who would redeem His people and rule over the nations. That's what's bound up in this word Christ, Christos, anointed one. So when John talks about believing that Jesus is the Christ, he is describing the person who embraces Jesus as the Savior and the King. He is not describing the person who will simply state that is true of Jesus. He is not describing the person who will simply acknowledge that is true of Jesus, but rather the person who embraces Jesus as such. So the person who has genuinely received Jesus as Savior and King is the person who has been born of God. This concept of being born of God is found in one of John's other books in the New Testament, namely the Gospel of John. In chapter 3, you will remember that John, in in the Gospel of John chapter 3, John records the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus in which Jesus said that to see the kingdom of heaven... One must be born again, or born anew, or born from above, or born of God. All of those phrases describe the same thing. And they are just different ways to express the same idea. Being born of God means that God transforms us from people who have hard hearts to people who have hearts that love Him. So what John is saying here is that the person who has genuinely received Jesus Christ as Savior and King demonstrates that God has done a work in his life and he or she has been born of God. But John doesn't stop there. Notice, as he often does throughout this letter, he moves from the vertical to the horizontal. He connects our relationship with God to our relationship with the people of God. So he says here at the end of verse 1, And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Other English translations make this even clearer by saying, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever, whoever has been born of him. In other words, the person who really loves the Father also loves the Father's children. John has said this so many times in his letter already. In fact, just two verses earlier, in chapter 4, 4, verse 20, he said, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. It's a total contradiction when we say we have been born from above and we now love the Father but we don't love others who also have been born from above. That's why John connects the two thoughts together here in verse 1, and he says it again in verse 2, but he reverses the order. Notice verse 2. He says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Now notice the wording of this verse. This, 
This seems like a strange way for John to word his statement. We might have expected John to say, by this we know that we love God if we love his children. Or, by this we know that we love God if we keep his commandments. And John will say that in the very next verse, but here he says something that sounds strange at first. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Why would John say it that way? Why would he word it that way? He doesn't answer that question here, but I think we can give an answer from what Scripture teaches elsewhere. Because we are commanded so often in the Word of God to love one another, it would be very easy for us to slip into what some Bible teachers call sloppy agape. The most common Greek word for love is the word agape, or agape, depending on how you pronounce it in English or in Greek. And that's where that phrase come from, comes, came from. Sloppy agape is when our supposed love for one another is not the right kind of love or is a misguided love. For example, let me illustrate this. If you have a Christian friend who struggles with drunkenness, it is not love to buy him a bottle of wine when he asks you to do him that favor. That's not doing him a favor, and that is not really loving him. You would be disobeying the command of God to love him in that way, and I put the word love in quotes there in that statement because that's not really love. Let me give another example. If you are a Christian gal and your Christian boyfriend says, if you love me, you will be immoral with me, it's not really love to give in to his request. If you love him in that way, and again, love is in quotes in this statement, if you love him in that way, you are disobeying the command of God for purity. If you have a Christian friend who struggles with homosexuality, and he wants you to condone and accept his actions when he fails in that area, that's not really love. This is so important, beloved, because there are many Christians... Not just unsaved people. There are many Christians who define love as accepting whatever they do in life, no matter how sinful. That is not really loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is not loving them. It is not genuine Christian love for them if they want us to disobey God to love them. It's not genuine Christian love for them if they want us to compromise our love for God to show them love as they define it. That's why John says this the way he does. Notice it again. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Loving God... And loving the children of God can never really be contradictory. Loving the people of God does not involve disobedience to God's commandments in order to love one another or in in order to love someone else. That's why John words this the way he does. Then he turns it around to what we are used to hearing or the phraseology that is more common to us. Verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. 
In the first part of this verse, John reiterates what he heard Jesus say in John 14, 15, where Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Or as some translations rendered, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our love for God is demonstrated by keeping his commandments. Our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is demonstrated by keeping His commandments. It's an empty claim when we say we love the Lord, but we don't obey Him. That's what John reaffirms in the first part of this verse. When he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. But then he adds another thought when he says, And His commandments are not burdensome. That is a fascinating comment. His commandments are not burdensome. Before we analyze it, let me ask you the question. Do you believe that? Do you really have that perspective? His commandments are not burdensome? Is John implying that the Christian life is easy? I don't think so. The Christian life is hard or difficult in one sense, but it's not hard in the sense that we always think. Let me explain what I mean. It is hard or difficult to be willing to surrender to the Lord Jesus because we have to fight self-will and we have to be willing to die to self. That is often a hard struggle in our hearts. You know what I'm talking about, surely. That is often a, a difficult struggle in our lives. Will we go the Lord's way? Will we do things His way? Will we do what He wants us to do? That's often a struggle. The hard part is in the willingness to die to self. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he said this, For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know what a yoke is. You've seen it, at least depicted uh, in pictures of animals, or actually maybe you've seen it personally. A yoke being a wooden, uh, a wooden harness that would pull together or hold together two animals. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is little doubt that John had that statement from Jesus in his mind when he wrote this sentence, his commandments are not burdensome. It's not really all that hard to obey the Lord, but many times it's hard to be willing to obey the Lord. The hardness or the difficulty is in the struggle of our hearts. We wrestle with being willing to do what the Lord wants us to do instead of what we want to do. That's where the struggle comes in. Let me illustrate this so you you, you understand what I'm describing. Is it hard to say the words, please forgive me? Is it hard to say those three words? If I were to right now say, in unison, on the count of three, one, two, three, let's all say, please forgive me. Would that be hard to to say? Not at all. Is it difficult to say the words, I forgive you? I mean, is it difficult just to mouth those words or say them or formulate them with your tongue so that you speak them? Is that difficult? No. We would all say, you know, that's not hard to say. 
It's not hard to say the words. But when our flesh flares up, it's sometimes very hard to be willing to say that. That's the way it is in our walk with the Lord. His commandments are not burdensome. I mean, think about it. The Lord doesn't give us ridiculous and onerous tasks like beat yourself with a whip every time you sin. Beat yourself until you bleed. You won't find that commandment anywhere in the Bible. Or wash your hands and your feet 30 times a day to prove that you want to be pure. You won't find that command anywhere in the Bible. Or stand at attention and pray for three hours every afternoon. It's not in Scripture. Or read your Bible for an hour every morning, an hour every afternoon, an hour every evening. Those are the kinds of commands that people make up in religion. But the Lord doesn't give us those kinds of commandments. He doesn't give us commandments that are onerous, that are ridiculous, that are unrealistic. Instead, he says things like this. He tells us to love him. He tells us to think of others. He tells us to be kind to others. He tells us to be thankful for what he has given us in life. He tells us to honor him by giving to him a portion of what he has blessed us with in life. He tells us to communicate with him in prayer. He tells us to listen to him in his word. He tells us to be salt and light to people in this decaying and dark world in which we live. He tells us to encourage others. He tells us to reach out to others. His commandments are not burdensome. There's nothing nothing burdensome about those kinds of commandments. The difficulty is being willing to die to self to do what he wants us to do instead of what we want to do in our selfishness. And the difficulty is is being willing to go against the direction that this world tries to push at us. This world system encourages us to live for ourselves instead of living for the Lord to live for self, to think of self first, and that certainly can make the Christian life difficult. But even with that, the new birth that God has granted us provides the power to be able to overcome and be victorious, which is why John adds the next verse, verse 4. Notice what he says. He says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith. Here John introduces one of his favorite terms to describe us as Christians. He refers to us as overcomers. He uses the verb form three times in two verses, and he uses the noun form once here. So four times within these verses, he uses either the verb or noun form of this Greek word. The noun form of this word is one that is very familiar to us in our culture because, as I've told you many times in the past, this is the Greek word Nike. The word means victory or win or victor or overcomer or winner. John loves this description of us as Christians. He loves it. 
Of the 24 times this word occurs in the New Testament, John uses it 21 times. Did you catch that? John uses this word 21 of the 24 times the word is used in the New Testament. Beloved, in Christ we are victors. In Christ we are overcomers. In Christ we are winners. That's who we are. It's not who we are in and of ourselves. It's not who we are naturally. It's it's who we are because of the new birth. It's who we are because we are born of God, as John says here. God has changed us and given us a new heart that longs to please Him and a heart that longs to obey Him and a heart that longs to love Him. The world system is contrary to those things. The value system of this world is to love self and to love things and even to love wickedness. This is what is pushed at us daily. This is what is propagated in our culture. This is the message that comes through loud and clear. That is why as Christians we swim upstream. We swim against the tide. We swim against the flow. This world is pushing us to love self, to love sin, not to love God. And the question that comes is, do we have the strength to overcome? Not in ourselves. But we do have the strength by virtue of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that relationship was formed by our faith in Him. Which is why John words verse 4 the way he does. That's why he adds the last part of this verse. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. The moment we placed faith in Jesus Christ, it was guaranteed that we would be victorious. Beloved, understand this. Ultimately, we will win. No matter what happens to you in this life, no matter what happens to you in this life, if you are really a child of God, you will ultimately win. That's why John puts this in the past tense when he says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Past tense. There's a sense in which it has already happened. It is as good as done. Because when we were joined to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we became partakers of His victory. It has already happened positionally, and it is certain that it will happen ultimately. Not only that, it can happen daily if we will draw our strength from our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, there are three enemies that wage war against us. We've seen all of these in John's writings here. The the three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The New Testament especially warns about all three. The Word of God talks about all three of those enemies as real and as powerful. The flesh is the internal enemy. The devil is the external enemy. And the world is the enemy that's all around us, the the sphere in which we live. We have three powerful enemies. The world system is the one that John has in view here. And he says it is a formidable foe, but ultimately we will overcome. He says in verse 5, Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, it's important to emphasize that when John refers to believing that Jesus is the Son of God, he is not merely talking about intellectual assent. 
He's not talking about mental assent or acknowledgement. He's talking about the kind of belief that involves intellect, yes, but emotion and volition or will. He is talking about the kind of belief that knows and embraces the truth, the kind of belief that longs for and desires to spurn sin, and the kind of belief that submits to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That phrase, Son of God, emphasizes the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a unique phrase emphasizing deity. Jesus is God in human flesh. That is why in the Gospel of John, when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Jewish leaders often tried to kill him. They wanted to stone him. They knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God in human flesh. This was not something that was emphasized very much throughout Hebrew Scripture. You you don't find this concept very much at all in the Old Testament. The emphasis in Hebrew Scripture was on the coming Messiah who would be king and savior and redeemer. But not a lot was said about his deity. Do you know why? It's pretty obvious why. Lest the Jewish people make the mistake of thinking there are two gods. God the Father, God the Son, two gods. They lived in a polytheistic culture, a, a, a pluralistic uh, culture of many gods. And so therefore, God was very careful in how he revealed himself in Hebrew Scripture so as to not miscommunicate. There aren't two gods. There's only one God. But there are three persons in the Godhead, and those three are equal in essence. That's the emphasis of this phrase, Son of God. It emphasizes distinct person from the Father, but equal essence with the Father. As Peter said of Jesus in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Peter uttered that statement, Jesus said, Simon, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. You didn't get that from yourself. You didn't get that from any person. You got that from God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Both of those are ascribed to Jesus right here in this text. Both of them. Verse 1 says Jesus is the Christ, which means Messiah. And verse 5 here proclaims him as the Son of God. As such, he is the victor with a capital V. He is the overcomer with a capital O. He is the winner with a capital W. In John 16, Jesus said, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And again, Jesus stated that before his death and resurrection. He stated it in the past tense, I have overcome the world, because it was absolutely certain that he would overcome the world. By virtue of our union with him through faith, we also overcome the world, John says here in verse 5. The Apostle Paul agreed with this because Romans 8.37 says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The word there in Romans 8.37 is the verb form of super Nikes. We are more than conquerors. We are super Nikes through him who loved us. Beloved, that's who you are if you are a child of God. This is God's estimation of you. This is God's a description of you. You are an overcomer. You are a winner. You are a victor. Ultimately, you and I will win. What an encouraging passage of Scripture this is. 
to be described in this way by the Holy Spirit of God. You may remember that a couple times throughout this series on 1 John, I have mentioned the fact that John gives three tests or three marks of a true Christian, a true child of God. He cycles those three tests uh, through several times in his letter. Those three tests or marks are the doctrinal test of truth, the social test of love, and the moral test of obedience. All three of those, or or let me say it a different way, a true child of God passes all three tests. A true child of God has all three marks in his or her life. The doctrinal test of truth is believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. The social test of love is loving others who are also born of God. And the moral test of obedience is keeping the Lord's commandments. Now why am I repeating what we've already seen in this letter? Because it's interesting to note that all three of those ideas are in these verses that describe us as overcomers. All three. Let me show you. Verses 1, 4, and 5 talk about believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. That's the doctrinal test of truth or belief. Verses 1 and 2 talk about loving other believers. That's the social test of love. And verse 3 talks about obedience or keeping the Lord's commandments. That is the moral test of righteousness or the moral test of obedience. That's a description of overcomers. Who is an overcomer? Who is a winner by God's description? It is someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It is someone who loves the people of God. It is someone who keeps the commandments of God. That is a description of a winner. So I ask you this question in closing. Regardless Of what brand of athletic shoe you wear, are you a Nike? Are you a winner? Are you an overcomer through faith in Jesus Christ? Ask yourself that question as we bow together in closing. Please bow your head with me. Close your eyes so you're not distracted by anything going on around you. And think about what you have seen in God's word this morning. This is the the Holy Spirit-inspired description of a true child of God. This is God's description of a winner, an overcomer, a victor. Is this you? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Not with mere intellectual assent, not with just some kind of mental acknowledgement, not not that kind of belief. Have you believed in Jesus Christ in the sense of believing the facts of the gospel, desiring to turn from sin, and submitting your life to Jesus Christ as your King and Redeemer? Have you really believed in Jesus Christ in that way? If so, the Holy Spirit says here, you're born of God. You're in the family of God. You're a child of God. And as such, 
We are supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are supposed to keep the Lord's commandments. Does this describe you? If it does, in God's eyes, by God's estimation, you are a winner. Swim against the flow of the world. The world tells you to love self, to love sin, to love things. God tells you to love him, to love people, to love his word. Are you willing to swim upstream? Are you willing to go against the flow and be different and be what God wants you to be, not what this world tries to make us become? Those are the kinds of questions that flow out of this powerful text we've considered this morning. Father, thank you that you look at us as winners, not not in and of ourselves, certainly not naturally, but by virtue of our union with your Son, Jesus Christ, you declare us to be victors, overcomers. That's your estimation of us. That's your view of us. And may that encourage us. May it encourage us to live life your way, to go against the flow of this world. This, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So, Father, if that is us, if we are true, truly believers in your Son, Jesus Christ, may we live victorious. And in closing, we want to pray for anyone who has gathered here with us this morning who is not a winner spiritually, is not an overcomer, a victor, because he or she has not surrendered to your Son, Jesus Christ, has not come to know him. May your Holy Spirit make the contrast so abundantly clear in his or her mind, whoever it is, so that he or she would see what is needed, the need to turn from self, turn from sin, and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. May you be pleased to accomplish that work in the lives of those who cannot rightly call you Father. We pray this together in the precious matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.